as we look at this, I'm going to be uh, tonight, the first one is just an overview. Going to do an introduction to the book of uh, Galatians. I don't know how familiar y'all are. The things, I mean, I learned a lot just in preparation for this sermon. Uh, I did not know that this book was the book that uh, led Martin Luther to the Lord. It was this book that opened his heart to the gospel and convicted him and showed him that uh, people are not saved by works. He was a Catholic monk. He was not saved that way. And uh, this book is, uh, is very big. Only six chapters. Small, yet extremely powerful. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Galatians to correct false doctrines, specifically Judaism, mixed with Christianity. The date uh, may not matter to us, uh, between 49 and 55, 55 AD. That may come up again later. We may look at that more closely because it might uh, have some stuff to do with uh, a council that Paul went to. Probably written from Ephesus in his third missionary, after his third missionary journey. Uh, but there's no mention that he went back in Galatians. There's no mention of him going back to Galatia like he does in other books. I wish I could come. I look forward to coming back. He does not say that in this book. It is one of his earlier epistolary letters. Some think it's his first. Probably just early. The main characters in Galatians are Paul as a spiritual father, we see that in uh, chapter 4, verse 19. God the Father is described as him who called the Galatians in chapter 6, I mean chapter 1, verse 6. Jesus, who gave himself in chapter 1, verse 4, and the Judaizers. You won't, pretty sure we don't see the word Judaizers, but we know who they are. Uh, Judaizing was a, a horrible uh, mix-up of Christianity and Judaism. Very common in the early church when this was written. It was only a, a couple generations or maybe one generation since Pentecost. <laughs> but quickly, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders and people who wanted to carry on traditions and Judaism, they went after young churches and young Christians and uh, they wanted to kind of keep, keep their group big. The Judaizers are identified by their tactics and their teachings. Galatians, this is some stuff that I learned, can refer to a specific ethnic group, meaning from Gaul, a place called Gaul. That's what, we, uh, what eventually became France, that area. Or it can mean to people who lived in a Roman province that got its name from them same people. This epistle is addressed to the churches of Galatia. We see that in verse 2. Not a specifically named individual church like we see in other of Paul's epistles. It's likely that people of Gaul, Gaelic descent were in the churches mentioned. What does Galatians talk about? Paul has to defend 
his own name and reputation. This begins in chapters 1 and 2. He gives a fairly detailed testimony about his training, his call, and his credentials. Galatians you won't find to be encouraging or lighthearted. This is hard teaching. Paul has a painful task of trying to reestablish gospel faith in people he had only recently successfully preached to. You'll see, and if you got uh, the, the maps in the back of your Bible, you might see Paul's missionary journeys uh, after, his, after successfully preaching there, uh, starting churches, winning people to Jesus. He, uh, he had to go back. And he had to uh, write this letter and encourage them to, to get right. He had the painful task of trying to uh, get these people reeled back in. To say that Paul was upset is putting it mildly. He was, he was mad. He uses language and a form in this epistle that is not found in any of his other letters. Paul had to wade back into waters that he knew held only heartache and loss should he fail. In Galatians, Old Testament Judaism and law is pitted against New Testament grace. Liberty is championed over legalism. Galatians has been called the Christian's Declaration of Independence. It has been called the Magna Carta of the early church. Martin Luther said, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle, which I have wedded my, to which I have wedded myself. It is my Catherine von Bora. It has been said, Galatians takes up controversially, that is to settle an argument, what Romans puts systematically. Some verses that stand out in Galatians, deep doctrinal verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, speaking of Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Chapter 2, verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified. Chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom in Christ, we has, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And chapter 5 verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the lust of the flesh. <clears throat> uh, I'm going to read some words and numbers. I really don't mind that it bores you because it's very, very interesting. It's very critical. It's very amazing to me how these things appear in Scripture. Uh, some key doctrinal words. Christ appears 38 times in 33 verses. Grace appears 7 times in 7 verses. Law, 32 times in 25 verses. Gospel, 11 times in 11 verses. Faith, 21 times in 19 verses. Believe, 
four times in four verses. Promise, 11 times in 10 verses. Justified, 8 times in 6 verses. Spirit, 18 times in 18 verses. Flesh, 16 times in 4 verses. Circumcision, or circumcised, 13 times in 12 verses. And bondage, 8 times in 7 verses. Okay, that's the interesting part about the background of Ephesians, I mean Galatians. Uh, let's look, we're going to try to look at uh, just the greeting, just the beginning tonight. Uh, please understand that this is, this is profound. I won't be able to plumb the depths of Galatians in this study. When we, uh, I don't know how many times I'll be doing this, as how long, ever how long it takes I suppose. We'll, us guys are in a cycle. We, my time will come up every four or five weeks I suppose. And... Uh, We'll just do it as it comes. Tonight will be a short introduction, but it is, I'm telling you, if you, if you haven't looked at it and studied it, it's, it's, you're going to be amazed. Uh, let's look at the, the beginning. This is verses 1 through 5 of Galatians. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches in Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. God, you know my heart. You know I, I stand uh, humbly, and God, I need your help. God, I pray that your spirit will illumine this word. God, I pray that uh, you'll draw us all close to you. I pray, God, that you'll stir the hearts of young people. God, draw them to you. Save them, dear God. Help us to be better Christians, uh, that we'll learn how to oppose false teaching, and that God will do it in, in love and fervor like Paul. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> uh, we have Paul's response, the Galatian letter. We do not have the letters or the accusations from the false teachers. So, we have to figure out what they said about Paul by studying his responses. It's a, a little like Jeopardy. The answer is the question. Pay attention as we look at these scriptures. I don't think it'll take very long. And ask, why would Paul say something, state something that to us is very obvious? In his epistles, he, especially the beginning, he says the same thing in close to the same way. And this is, that's true to a certain extent here in Galatians. Uh, but there's subtle differences that tell us Paul is responding to something. So, so ask yourself, why would Paul state something that is to us is very obvious? His apostleship is stressed hard. He mentions it in other letters. Here it's stressed hard. Any idea of him following men or getting called by a man is denied. So, we see 
the first verse, Paul, this is the same thing he does in a lot of his epistles. His Greek name, how do we know his, his uh, Hebrew name? Saul. That's how he started out. He's introduced in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, at the stoning of Stephen. Quickly it moves to chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Then, the next, I mean, verse 3, we see that Saul was ravaging the church and dragging people. This, are, this is words right straight from Scripture. Ravaging the church and dragging people to prison. These descriptions do not endear Saul to our hearts. Paul points out his Hebrew lineage and education in Philippians 3.5. He describes himself in words like, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee. He said, I had my zeal was unsurpassed, which is something that Jews and Pharisees, they wanted a go-getter. That's what we call them today, a go-getter. Uh, he said, my zeal was so great that I was persecuting <clears throat> the church. He describes himself as blameless as a Pharisee. So that's a little of Paul's background. We'll come back to it in other, in other verses later. Paul's the author. He describes himself as an apostle. This means one who is sent, a messenger. For the purpose of Galatians, of this particular letter, this title, Apostle, is more important than his actual name because he needs to establish authority. Paul is clarifying in this greeting, early on in his message, that his message both in the past and his experiences with the Galatians in this letter carries the full authority of one sent from God. He is emphatically studying that. <clears throat> Some other epistles and the way Paul greets his, his uh, hearers in Romans 1.1. He says, Paul, a servant called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. First and second Corinthians, Ephesians and Colossians. In second Timothy, he says, I am an apostle by the will of God. Titus. And Philippians, he says, I am a servant of Christ. First Timothy, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. It's not unusual that he would call himself an apostle, but with this emphasis that he puts it here, it's very strong. And also in verse 1, you'll see he says, I'm not, I'm an apostle, not from men. Paul uses the strongest language the way the Greek is, the inflection, the stress, the strongest language to assert that not only was he not sent or commissioned by any man, but his apostleship was not even mediated through any man. It's kind of like, uh, oh, Matthias? Oh, you, yeah, good, you picked him, that's cute. God picked me. His apostleship was granted by God, the Father himself and his son Jesus. He continues describing this in verse 1. Describing Jesus, emphasizing 
who raised him from the dead. Paul's legitimacy as an apostle had been denied by the false teachers. That's one of the things we had to ascertain from his response. He is here declaring that he, is, that he was qualified on authority of the risen Jesus. If you uh, want to check that out, go to Acts chapter 9 verse 5. This is extremely plain because in this Damascus Road appearance, Paul says, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. He also points out that God the Father was the one who raised Jesus. So evidently, he also approved of the actions that Paul took. I mean, Jesus took on the Damascus Road appearance. In verse 2, he says, All these brothers... Now, we don't have any names. He says, All the brothers are helping me send this letter. We learn from other epistles, from studying the Bible, that Barnabas was his faithful ministry companion. He was with him in most of his missionary work. He, uh, he was there when nobody else was for Paul. We believe Barnabas was with Paul. But since brothers is plural, we know that more men are there and they agree with Paul and they're backing him up. But their names are just left out. This is Paul's way of saying that the Galatians' rejection of him also meant rejection of other respected men in the church. Men with more maturity and experience maybe than him. He mentions where the letter is meant, to the churches of Galatia. Most of Paul's epistles are addressed to a specific church. I already talked about this. A specific church or a city with a church. First and Second Timothy and Titus are directed to special individuals who had a leadership role in the church. Philemon is written to an individual for a specific matter. Now, Galatia is a region. It's not a country. It's not a city. It's, it's a place. It's a, a, a Roman province by this time. Uh, it had multiple cities and corresponding churches. Uh, if we look at that map that I mentioned earlier, Paul's missionary journeys, you'll see Galatia is pretty big. Finish this phrase, Paul of... Nailed it. Christy got it. Paul of Tarsus. Tarsus is in the southeast on the coast. That's where Paul lived. Right over the mountains is Galatia. It's pretty big. It's a region. And then down towards the, the coast are these churches where Paul went to on his missionary journey. He planted them. Uh, so Paul wrote this epistle, and he expected it, like some of his other letters, to be circulated, maybe even copied, and read to other churches. It's, it's, a, it's a region. It's a place. It's got more than one church. Look in verse 3. Now, we already found out that Paul is not happy. So I just wonder, when he writes grace and peace, grace to you and peace, is he writing this with clenched teeth? He says grace to you and peace. Most of Paul's letters use this same greeting or something like that. We're used to seeing that from, from Paul. This is a standard literary style that they had back in that day. For Paul to wish grace and peace on his audience is not unusual. And, or just like he identifies himself or signs his letter at the beginning. 
while we would sign a letter at the end. He identifies himself in the beginning. Grace, we recognize this Greek word as what? Charis. It's the Greek word. It's a Greek form of greeting. And peace, shalom, is a Hebrew form of this greeting. He gives them both. Grace and peace to you. <clears throat> in this case, however, and this is kind of where the, uh, the real thick stuff begins. These two words gets Paul's discourse started on a doctrinal note. As he pours his soul out again to the Galatians, he will hammer grace into their ears. Like a sports fan bragging on his team, he will tell many times and many ways how grace triumphs over law. Peace is a product of grace. However, there cannot be peace without until grace is appropriated after it's accepted and used. Also in verse 3, Paul will lay out peace with God as the prize or the destination. But the Galatians have exited onto the road of law. And Paul, his job is to say, nope, can't get there from here. Back up, get back where you started, go back to grace. In verse 3, he continues, from God the Father. Again, typical Paul salutation. For those with Jewish backgrounds, there were a few people with Jewish backgrounds or familiar with Jewish uh, customs. A mention of the Father will get their attention. Jews, the Judaizers, no, no problem talking about the Father. No problem at all. They outright rejected the Son. So he got their attention when he mentioned the Father. Verse 3, And the Lord Jesus Christ. He's reminding the people again who saved them. If they are in fact saved, it is Jesus. He's laying a foundation. He's cracking the door open and he's soon going to kick it down. Listing them together like this, the Father and the Son, he's expressing Christ's deity and cooperation with the Father and the Father's cooperation and support of the Son. Here's where his doctrine is getting, is getting strong. Verse 3 continues, He gave himself for our sins. It's getting better and better. More show of Jesus fulfilling Old Testament types, especially a sacrifice. Then we go to verse 4. He describes Jesus as who gave himself for our sins. The Galatians had either forgotten or they chose to ignore this one particular specific fact. Jesus had died. It had been a few years, but Jesus had died. This was old news by this time, and uh, very few people disputed it anymore. But Jesus died, but his death was a voluntary atonement. He also rose from the dead. That's, that's the powerful part. If we doubt <coughs> Jesus' atonement or his voluntary uh, submission to this sacrifice, we can look in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. This is spectacular, spirit-inspired writing at its finest. 
Every word and phrase is loaded with power and authority to destroy every idea about works, justification. And we ain't even got past the salutation. <clears throat> he continues to deliver us from this present evil age. The poor Galatians' souls were at risk here. And they had no idea they needed delivered. The word delivered also translated rescued. Uh, this is a Greek word. Exario. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. E-X-A-I-R-E-O. This means to rescue by an act of power. <clears throat> Stephen used the same word in Acts chapter 7 verses 10 and 34 about the Hebrew children being rescued from Egypt. Peter used it in Acts 12, 11, where he was delivered from prison. Claudius Lysias used the word in Acts 23, verse 27, after he saved Paul from a violent mob. In Acts 26, 17, Paul recounts Jesus rescuing him from the Jews and the Gentiles. We also see it in Genesis 32.11, Isaiah 42.22, and in Psalm 104.1. But Galatians 1.4 is the only metaphorical use of exario in the New Testament. They, were be, they would, Jesus had rescued them by an act of power and delivered them from the present evil age. This evil age, without too many words, Paul points out that even rescued saints are not swept away to heaven. The gospel won't deliver us from the presence of evil and sin, but from the power of sin. Later, Paul will expound more about freedom from law and sin. He really, really will tell a lot more about law and sin. He says, according to the will of our God and Father, this is more of his introduction. Not only was God cooperating in Jesus' sacrifice, it was his particular plan. Stating this, Paul leaves no room for another way or a better sacrifice. Surely, the Judaizers had told the Galatians that it was God's will for them to obey the law. Sounds good, don't it? They reasoned that doing God's will would gain his approval and favor and ultimately their salvation. By this same logic, Jesus' sacrifice was not even needed. If they really cared about God's will, they would have to study the facts. And Paul is about to lay out in Galatians all the facts for careful scrutiny. Well, we're down to verse 5. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Paul knows that God will get his glory. This is not well-wishing like grace and peace. It is a fact stated. God is not glorified in any plan of man's design. Yes, 2,000 years of ritual and ceremonies would be hard to drop. When the Old Testament stopped and the new covenant started, I can imagine it would be hard. 
but they pointed, all these Old Testament figures and shadows pointed to the Jesus that Paul was teaching. He explained it very well. <clears throat> if we hold Scripture as holy and inspired, if we believe it is the Word of God and the power of God unto salvation, these five verses of greeting and salutation contain enough doctrine and truth to save even the worst sinner. This is no accident. It is not just Paul being an educated orator or an eloquent writer. This is God himself moving a redeemed infidel to write his will on a page because he himself loves the souls of his people. It's very profound, a very big deal. <clears throat> the sheep are looking at the next bite of grass. They got their head down. And the wolf is right here with them. Right among them. Well, from the Galatians side, what does this have to do with us? Uh, we're not Galatians. I don't know any of us who would admit French lineage. Uh, we're not Galatians. Still, we need to learn from their mistakes. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. We have to use Scripture. Scripture is our only way of learning. When Paul reasoned with the Galatians, he left for us truths and methods to help us understand the common error. It's just the way we work. It's the way we slide. It's common for people. The common error of works as a means of salvation. We have to understand that. He wasn't preaching against good works. We can't, uh, we can't preach against good works. Paul was condemning good works as a means of salvation. As a means of salvation. Don't ever forget that. Not the way we show our salvation or the way we help people or the way we uh, live our lives, we, but we're not saved by it. Right. He was condemning that error and how the law, as we use it, cannot save, but it will point us to Jesus. Paul has to tell the Galatians this again. The foundation and heart of the gospel is taught and defended in this epistle. When we teach the children and encourage one another, we can use Paul's arguments. And because works righteousness is still a problem, people love to get into apparently. <clears throat> a tidbit of history that I learned from this. I do not respect Caesar. I don't like him. I wouldn't preach him. But apparently he wrote some things down. Listen to how Caesar described the Gauls. The Gauls were, they, yep, they were the ancestors of the Galatians. He says, the infirmity, that means the weakness, the infirmity of the Gauls is that they are fickle in their resolves. They are fond of change and not to be trusted. 
So they were kind of easily persuaded into error. Uh, that sounds kind of like our modern culture, I think, uh, in general, and Americans in particular. People and their sins don't change much, and the gospel has not changed a bit. In Galatians, this is from Paul's perspective. We see in Paul the zeal and fervor that drove the young Pharisee Saul when he was sincere but lost. Saul was certain he was doing God's will by harassing this new sect that people were calling the way. He was convinced. He knew it. He was doing the right thing. He had a great mind, but he had a bad heart. And even though he had the most education of anyone his age, God took him back to school. With his new heart, he valued men's souls. As regenerate and New Testament believers, we must value what Jesus values, the souls of our families and co-workers. So go after their hearts, but not for selfish glory. This is a, like I said, it's a, an amazing, spectacular declaration of the gospel. I hope you'll go home and study it and learn all you can before I get back up here and we can go through it together. I don't, I don't plan to try to be the, the smartest one or the best uh, teacher, but it is, it is fascinating to see how God works and how he worked in history to prepare for us his word and to go back after people. After they, they say they're saved, Galatians says, I'm good, it's good. They started their church. Well, then when somebody came along with a bigger piece of candy, they jumped right on it. It's very, very sad, and it is not new, and it is not over. Let's pray.